Good afternoon. I was just thinking as we're singing that wonderful hymn, uh, we take for granted the gospel that has come to us so faithfully for over 2,000 years. And faithful men have carried the torch and guarded the deposit. And so even as we look at the early first century and the life of Timothy being called uh, as a minister of the gospel, we ought to give thanks to God for preserving his church, for raising up ministers to preach the gospel. What a wonderful preserving influence of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're at the end of the chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's letter, Paul's first letter to Timothy. And uh, we're going to read just from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, 18 to 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, as he also called him, his son in the faith, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We had a little digression with Paul in, in 1 Timothy, in verses 12 to 17, where he gives testimony. He kind of suddenly gives his testimony as the chief of sinners, Paul, and God's overflowing grace to him in the gospel. And he points out that his appointment as an apostle was by direct revelation and by God's sovereign appointment. It was not the church or the early church at the time. They were, in fact, suspicious and afraid of the Saul they'd come to hear about, that insolent opponent of the gospel. And if it, if it were let, left to a vote in that early first century by the church and the other apostles, they may even have denied him his apostleship. He was still uh, full of rage just a few weeks earlier before his Damascus Road experience. But here, Paul asserts his authority as an apostle to Timothy and the churches at Ephesus as an appointment made by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ called him directly on that Emmaus Road. And this was essential as we look at this book and look at the life of Timothy, who's to step into Paul's shoes, as it were, uh, in establishing Timothy's authority since the task that Timothy had been appointed to was enormous. He was not just a pastor in the regular sense of that word, but in a sense he was a pastor and a mentor to the pastors in the churches in Ephesus. And this was not under favorable circumstances. In fact, one of his first tasks in Ephesus was to address doctrinal and moral errors in the leadership, not in the churches themselves and the members, but in the leadership of the churches and the teachers in Ephesus. 
And then at the end of that digression about God's grace to him, his authority as an apostle, we see Paul, by a recollection of God's grace to him, bursting forth in that doxology of praise, which we observed last Lord's Day. To the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. An insolent opponent, a chief of sinners, and yet God appointed him as an apostle. And so he establishes his authority from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, so that Timothy may come with that authority to the church. And so the last three verses of chapter 1 before us opens with a charge to Timothy. It's a reminder of the charge given to him in the opening verses, and the tenor of that charge continues throughout the whole letter. And there's these various charges all really boiling down to the same thing, which is the title of my sermon, which I meant to give you, which is God the Deposit. God the Deposit, if there is one overall charge to Timothy. It summarizes really the purpose of the letter in that phrase found in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20. Actually, at the end of this epistle, to his child, to his son in the faith, he, he, he calls out, O oh, Timothy, O oh, Timothy, he says, God the deposit entrusted to you. So let's come to our text this afternoon. We have three main points with three lessons and applications for our own souls. And you may look at this and say, well, he's talking to a minister who's going to be like a bishop minister. He's got all these other ministers under him. What, what is this to me? But as we go, you will see that all of these things, maybe not in the, to the extent of responsibility that Timothy had and Paul, but they all apply to every member of the church of Jesus Christ. So three points about Timothy and his charge. Number one, Timothy's extraordinary charge. Timothy's extraordinary charge. Verse 18a says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. As mentioned, this is really a refresher, if you like, of the charge to Timothy when he was on his way to Macedonia. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1 beginning of the letter, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at, Ephesus, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. What is a charge? And I was thinking about this, and I didn't go to the dictionaries. I thought, like, what is a charge? If someone gives you a charge, and I like to think of a charge as an important instruction from somebody with authority over you with several responsibilities and specific details attached to it, which are to be faithfully carried out. The charge. If you're a painter of a house, you work for a company and your boss calls you and he says to you, go and paint this house. And I want you to start tomorrow, tomorrow morning. You must start immediately. You must paint according to certain specifications prescribed, which may be the removal of the previous paint and repair and proper preparation of the walls, uh, an undercoat, a specified undercoat within spec, and two top coatings and drying and curing times in between, etc., etc. And you must finish this job in a specified time. And he reiterates 
that it is essential that you carry out all these instructions carefully so that you may faithfully complete the job. This is a charge from your boss to do a certain job. If you do not complete the job according to exact instructions, you're not being faithful to your charge. And another example, perhaps, is if you're an executor of a will of a deceased person, you have a solemn charge to carry out the wishes of his estate exactly as prescribed. To receive a charge, you are entrusted to guard that charge and to fulfill it, and you will clearly need somebody who's responsible and qualified to correctly carry out that charge. <laughs> Timothy, we were listening to this before he became a pastor, he would have said, that's it, I'm out. I'm not sufficiently qualified for this. When officers are appointed in a church, they are given a solemn, they are given and solemnly to accept the biblical charge to them that comes with the office. And the church likewise, you, the members of the church, are charged to support them in this work and office as laid out in the scriptures. And in fact, I, I kind of just Googled or, or, or searched in my online Bible a charge in the Old Testament. And it is full of charges from the prophets, from the Lord's people, and from the Lord. Language, this language of charges to God, from God to his people, to the prophets, to the kings and, and the priests. Charges are nothing new. And when God gives a charge, it is an awesome responsibility to carry it out faithfully. In Deuteronomy, found a charge that is a general charge to the people of Israel through Moses and is in fact an ancient charge that is unchanged to the people of God in every place and throughout all time. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 11 verse 1. I actually quoted it this morning. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And of course, there are lesser and greater levels of responsibility in charges depending on the level of authority of the person who's giving the charge. And it's election time in the United States. And the charge to the President, the United States carries the highest possible authority in our land and with the greatest responsibility to carry it out faithfully. Do you get the picture? So Timothy, in our text, receives an extraordinary charge directly from God, as we'll see in a moment, through the Apostle Paul. And Paul, with great confidence, entrusts this charge to Timothy. A charge, we will see, comes ultimately from God. And in spite of Timothy's obvious human limitations, it is a charge which he accepted on the day that he was set apart to accept this extraordinary charge. In, in 1 Timothy, actually, chapter 6 and verse 12, he reminds him, and he says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which we are called, and about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
So when hands were laid on Timothy and he was set apart, he was stirred by the Spirit and responded with good confession to this charge in the presence of many witnesses. When we receive an important charge, the responsibility and the weight can be overwhelming. We become more aware of our weaknesses and our limitations accepting the charge. Moses was so nervous when the Lord called him. I cannot speak, Lord. The Lord gave him Aaron, his, his brother Aaron, to go before King Pharaoh. Jonah fled because he did not like, he did not want to accept the responsibility of that charge. And Timothy here, I'm sure, had some fears that may have seemed overwhelming to him and that may have caused him to be hesitant. But for the grace of God, he accepted this charge. And let me remind you, humanly speaking, there were three things against Timothy in this daunting task in accepting this charge. You may recall these. Firstly, he appeared to be timid by nature. Paul constantly has encouraged him to be bold and to command these things, not to neglect the gift that you receive, to practice these things, to fan into flame that gift that he received with the laying on of hands, presumably a gift in preaching and encouragement. The second thing against him was not only was he of, of timid constitution, but he was young in years for such an important office as a pastor to the pastors. And he must go in, as it were, with a rod on his first day on the job, as it were. And Paul encourages him to turn this apparent deficiency into strength. What does he tell him? He tells him in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, Let no one despise you because of your youth. Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And then thirdly, Timothy had a frail constitution. If that wasn't all enough, he was frequently sick. Uh, what a was something to do with his stomach. He appears to be frequently ill. And Paul says to him in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and verse 23, No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So we can drink a little more wine. So what was the solemn charge to Timothy? It was many things. And as we said, it could possibly be summarized. Uh, this charge was to God the deposit given to him. And here on our text, he describes the charge as waging the good warfare. The faith delivered to the apostles and handed down by Christ through the Holy Spirit entrusted to the church was a deposit to be guarded and proclaimed. And this is the good war that the church must wage. And it is a war not against flesh and blood, as we are reminded in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And at the end of this letter, in chapter 6 and 11, Paul outlines to Timothy that false doctrine, the contamination of the faith, leads to the opposite of godliness. 
to which the gospel has called us. He writes there, and you can read in, in chapter 6, a craving for controversies and quarrels about words, slander, envy, depraved minds, a love for pleasure and money, and his charge. The good warfare against these things, and he encourages Timothy to stay the course in this charge. Listen to the words, uh, verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6. But as for you, O man of God... Flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you, were, uh, which you were called and about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was he saying? Guard the deposit given to you. And the apostles faithfully guarded those. And we prayed for dozens of ministers on this day. And God has preserved his word through the ministers that he has called. Starting way back in the first century with this extraordinary charge to this frail man with the odds stacked against him. Secondly, Timothy's extraordinary charge, we observe in the second place, Timothy's extraordinary qualification. Timothy's extraordinary qualification. Verse 18, look at it there with me. It says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. What was special about Timothy? Why did Paul place so much confidence in this young, timid, and often sickly man and trust such big things to him? Did he take a liking to him as the brother in Christ? Did he recognize something extraordinary about him? And the only the answer is the only extraordinary thing about Timothy was that he was called by God to this office. And this was his extraordinary qualification. God had called him to this office. Paul's choice of Timothy wasn't a blind faith based on his personality. Uh, when Paul recruited Timothy the first time, that was back in Acts chapter 16, Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul came to Derby in Lystra, and there was a man named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father was a Greek. And the church says, and the leaders of the church, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And we know that Paul, uh, Timothy then accompanied Paul on his travels, demented him, and found him to be faithful and trustworthy, confirming to his own heart what the brothers said there was true about him. He was well spoken of but by the brothers. But this was not the reason for the appointment of Timothy, but it was God's expressed purpose. Paul, in this letter, reminds Timothy of where these solemn charges to him, where the qualification for this ministry originated from. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. 
do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And we know that at this event, as we read this text, three things happened to Timothy. A prophecy was made over him at that occasion. And in fact, in our text, verse 18, it's plural. Prophecies previously made about you. This was not once off, but the office of the prophet in this apostolic establishment of the church that still existed. There, there were prophecies about Timothy. And at his ordination and laying on of hands, there was a prophecy about made about him. The second thing that happened is the council the council of leaders, the council of elders, multiple men, maybe multiple church, lay their hands on him, prayed for him, and set him apart, as is our custom even in the 21st century church. And the third thing that happened was he was given a spiritual gift by the laying of hands, the on of hands, preaching and encouragement, everything necessary for the work of the ministry. Paul reminds Timothy of the testimony that he had received, not only from men they spoke well of him, but from the Spirit of God through prophecies made about him. His ministry was approved by God. He was called by divine revelation before he was called by the votes of the church. Several prophecies concerning Timothy to recommend him to the church. And though he may have felt inadequate, uh, with the lack of obvious outward suitability even perhaps, Timothy is to be encouraged that the charge he has received and the office that he was fulfilled was an appointment by God in an extraordinary way. God appointed Timothy to great and difficult undertakings. He was not an ordinary minister, but came close to being an apostle, frequently occupying Paul's place when Paul was absent. Therefore, it was necessary for Timothy, like Paul and Barnabas, to receive extraordinary testimony, to make it known it was not conferred upon them randomly by men, but by God himself. It was the will of God that he should not enter the office until he was called by the revelation of the prophets in that New Testament church. And I mentioned Paul and Barnabas, the same thing happened to them in Acts chapter 13. While they were worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them when they were ordained to be teachers and leaders and pastors to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, when God calls a man to the ministry of his word, it is not because of extraordinary qualifications, education, or natural gifts and abilities, as important as those may be. But when God calls his ministers through the church, he calls and qualifies them, and his spirit will empower them and equip them to guard that deposit, the faith, and to fight the good fight. Timothy's extraordinary qualification was given by God who calls and equips, qualifies a man to the work of the ministry. That brings us in the third place. We observe in the third and final place, 
Timothy's extraordinary weapons. And this is where the application can come close to home, to every pastor here today and to every member sitting here in Christ's church today. Timothy's extraordinary weapons. What were his weapons to enable him to safeguard this deposit, carry out his charge and wage a spiritual warfare faithfully? Two things are given him and shown here in our text. Verse 19, 20 of our text. Here it is, two things, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. Firstly, holding the faith. Take hold of, to grab something. This is another way of saying God the deposit. The apostolic word of Christ. It is the faith. This is not the trust or the faith that we exercise in believing, but this is the unchanging word of Christ, the scriptures, the doctrine contained in the whole of the scriptures, the objective truth of God's word. It is the truth that Timothy in 2 Timothy was called to be a good student of, that he may handle this word of truth correctly, the word of truth. This is one of the most important safeguards for Timothy in history. This is one of the most important safeguards for every child of God. Watch your doctrine closely. That body of divinity as contained in the Holy Scriptures, the very breathed out Word of God. This is something that is objective. And this is something that's given by the Holy Spirit to us who breathed upon this word, this Holy Bible. Can you remember our Savior on earth, having clothed himself with humanity, fought off the temptations of the devil? Pastor Sam reminded us this morning, those temptations were fierce. Those temptations were greater than we could ever face. But he warded off Satan's temptations with these words. It is written. It is written. Hold the faith. Hold the faith. To hold the faith, we need to have a solid grasp of the contents of the faith. Of the essentials of the faith. The deeper knowledge of our infinite loving and merciful and gracious and holy God the deeper our love for him will become. In other words, our love for God will be limited by our incomplete knowledge of him. Know the scriptures so that you may hold on to the scriptures. If we are to love God as we ought, we must know the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation, just to name a few. Don't get me wrong, we do not all have to enroll at RBS and become students and scholars. I quote, our knowledge must not come from textbook dogmatics, but from the Bible. It's history, it's narratives, it's poetry, it's parables, it's teaching, it's eschatology. The Bible provides knowledge of God that anoints the mind and affections with love. You do not have to be a theologian, 
but understand your faith and the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, doctrine of Christ, and all these things, and glean them from the scriptures as you immerse yourselves into the scriptures. Hold on to the faith. The faith. And that was Timothy. That is what Timothy was told to do. Brothers and sisters, knowing God through the word. This is the school of the Holy Spirit for the believer. This is the school of the Holy Spirit for the believer. What you know and believe about God is everything. Because what you know and believe will determine how you live. And that's where the second part comes in. Doctrine determines conduct. Right doctrine makes it possible to wage good warfare. This is what it means to hold on to the faith to God the deposit. And secondly, God the deposit. Secondly, holding a good conscience. Holding a good conscience. And that at first seems a little strange. The one so objective, the other seemingly so subjective. But this is the second weapon given to Timothy by God, the Holy Spirit, as he informs his good conscience through the word of Christ. Christ, had Christ accepted the worldly goods offered by the prince of the, in Christ's temptation, the prince of this world, he would have violated the commands of God. And brothers and sisters, when conscience is violated, sin and wickedness naturally follow. When conscience is violated, sin and wickedness naturally follow. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I'm not going to go do something else on the Lord's day. It worries you, your conscience, because your conscience is informed by the word of God. It will lead to bad conscience, the searing of the conscience and the transgression of the holy law. Of God. Never twist the scriptures to suit, to suit your own fancies and wicked desires for controversies like in 1 Timothy. Bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. Always listen to that quiet voice in your soul as a believer and never violate your informed conscience. A conscience shaped by the word of truth, by holding on to the faith. Is this not what Paul meant when he told Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine closely? Truth and conscience must work together closely. John Stott says, holding faith and a good conscience is what is necessary to fight the good fight. On the one hand, we must hold to the objective deposit, the faith meaning the apostolic faith. On the other hand, we must hold fast to the subjective treasure of a good conscience. And the matter of good conscience is so much more important than we give credit to or like to give credit to. Conscience was an immense issue for Paul. Three other times in these pastoral epistles, Paul references the importance of a healthy conscience. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Paul told Timothy 
the motivation for commanding the Ephesian elders to stop preaching false doctrine was the love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. In chapter 3 and verse 9 of 1 Timothy, he taught that the church leaders must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And in 2 Timothy 1 and 13, he substantiated his own ministry, where Paul says, I thank my God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. John Calvin says, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Obedience to Christ may seem legalistic to some people, but our conscience calls us out. Some habits may be okay for some people, but for you it's wrong, because your conscience says, says so. This may be a thought pattern or an attitude in your heart that no one else may detect. This is not an open sin, is it? A thought pattern? The things we think about and entertain? Or the attitude of our hearts, no one can detect that. And you are free to entertain that at the expense of your conscience. It may be an attachment uh, that is wrong, but the only voice telling you that is your conscience. Heed that inner voice. Do not sin against your conscience. God's word is clear. We must cultivate a good conscience. Brothers and sisters, take a hold of the faith and inform your conscience with the truth of the faith. And then Christ who lives in you by his Holy Spirit quickens your conscience and cleanses your conscience so that when your conscience says that very hard words that Pastor Sam told us about, no, no, because my conscience says so. These are indispensable weapons for the minister and for every child of God to wage the good for, uh, warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Paul chooses this passage. Uh, Paul rather closes this passage now with a warning given by an example where holding on to faith and a good conscience by not holding on to them leads, leads to a shipwreck of your faith. In fact, it led to the excommunication of these men and we not we don't have time to spend any time on this particular instance but really what it means in handing Noah to Satan is that they were excommunicated from the church that they would learn not to blaspheme and what is it to blaspheme to violate your conscience or to alter the word of God to suit you one leads to the other Look at the passage at the end of chapter three, by, uh, chapter one, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Rejecting what? Holding faith in a good conscience. They made shipwreck of their faith. And it turns out, as we see in 2 Timothy, that this Hymenius, one of the characters mentioned, was teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. And he handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Brothers and sisters, that's the lesson for us today. Hold on to the faith. The same faith that Timothy held on to. The same faith that Paul was faithful to. 
and all the other apostles and faithful gospel ministers down through the centuries. Just three very quick lessons and applications from what we've already observed. Number one, support the warfare of the ministers of God's word. What do I mean? I mean pray for your pastors that they would hold the faith unswervingly and good conscience guarding the deposit entrusted to them. Pray for them that they might not enter into temptation. There are many temptations facing the minister of the gospel. Support the warfare of the ministers of God's word. How can I support it by praying for them? How can I support it to open my heart to God's word so that I may learn what is the faith and that so I may inform my good conscience? Secondly, consider your gospel charge. You may just be, I'm not a pastor, I'm not even a deacon, I'm just a member of this church. Consider your gospel charge. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as you saw. Wage your own warfare faithfully, fulfilling your charge, the faith, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. There are many things going on in your mind in the week. There are many attitudes in your heart. There are many words that come out. And Paul says, hold the faith. Inform your conscience with the word of Christ and then hold good conscience. Fulfilling your charge, hold the faith, your doctrine closely. This preserves your souls from sin by holding on to good conscience. Thirdly, the last application. Remember this warning. Remember this warning of these men who swerved. They swerved from the truth and doctrine was erroneous and practice soon followed and they made shipwreck of their faith. There are many warnings in scripture. Swerving from the faith will lead to moral sin. Bad doctrine leads to bad practice and a shipwreck of the faith. May the Lord seal his word to all of our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we bless you for the faith that you have given us, the word of Christ. Oh, Lord, and as ministers of the gospel, help us to guard the faith, to guard this deposit as Christians entrusted with the charge to obey the law of God Oh, Lord, help us to hold the faith and a good conscience and stop us, we pray, from swerving from these things and help us to exercise and to develop a good conscience. Lord, as we come to your table, we're reminded of the glorious gospel that makes it possible for us to be here today because our sins have been forgiven because Christ died for us. This is the faith that has brought us life. Help us, O Lord, and be present with us even as we come to the table. In Christ's name, amen.